You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. God is so good. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. I want to talk about the revealing of the Son of God. The beauty of this season in which we're starting as we look towards Christmas, the, the beauty of this season and the revealing of the Son of God, of which you and I now get to look upon with with such joy, the fact that God in his wisdom has revealed his solution, his solution to our sin issue, to our own rebellion against him. He has revealed the answer, the person of his son who came as Jesus, clearly as a sign for us. And we don't need to look anywhere else. Jesus is the sign. It's the the declaration to us that God truly loved us and that he's higher than anything that we'll face. We don't need any other sign. I remember a time me and my wife were traveling and we uh, were getting picked up at an airport by an individual we had never met before. Um, The family that was going to be hosting us had not yet made it. Uh, to our destination and so uh, they arranged for a driver to be there waiting for us and uh, there waiting outside of the arrival gates was our driver but he chose you know you you arrive out of the arrival gates and there's all these people with signs or our driver for some reason chose to to write out the sign with our name on it in an orange highlighter so it was nearly impossible to read it so there we were looking like fools looking and trying to read all these signs we were actually in a foreign country, so it's hard to make out most of them. And then all of a sudden, we started kind of uh, squinting at this one sign that we could just barely make out this orange scribbling on it, and there, we, there it was, there it was, said Myers. And, uh, and we found, found our driver. Sometimes in regards to God's answer for humanity, people make it out to be something that's very... Like it's very difficult to discern. But I believe God has made it crystal clear in the person of Jesus. There were were seasons in prior generations, meaning before Christ came, where things were very unclear, things were very foggy. That fog has been lifted, that veil has been lifted now because of the person of Jesus. And he is the sign. He is God with us. He is the answer pointing to the solution for our souls. And so, just even this Christmas season, I feel a conviction in my heart to draw us as a church family to the beauty of the revealed Son himself, Jesus. This is the answer, not just to the, the ale of our, um, our issue eternally, like our eternal destiny, whether we will go to heaven or whether we will go to hell. That's answered in the person of Jesus. But it's also in the everyday stuff of life, the answer is Jesus himself, And I've found that doubt and unbelief is often rooted in misunderstandings about what God is like. And so then what we fall prey to is is false gospels, which really are no gospel at all. The word gospel means good news. But a false, false gospel is not really good news because it's offering something other than what truly is the solution. It's offering something besides Jesus. There's... False gospels that, that offer you a path through works of your own self-righteousness. If you, if you do these things, then everything will be all right. 
that's so common in our, our self-help age. There's these false gospels of self-expression and self-realization. If you just finally true, you know, truly find who you are internally, you'll be, you'll be better. There'll be a better you to be, to be realized. There's a, a false gospel of realities meaning live for this present moment, just what's temporal, what's, just what's pleasurable here and now. But Jesus himself offers the only way, as he said himself, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. So the good news of God is the good news of Jesus, period. The good news of God is the good news of Jesus, he provides the good news. I want to point us first, before we look at Hebrews 1, this passage that I pointed us to last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it'll be on the screen. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the enemy's chief way of toying with us is to fog our vision. So we won't truly see the clear sign, which is Jesus himself, to see the light. He messes with our vision of what God is like, vision of the character and the nature of, of God's goodness, of his mercy, of his grace, of his holiness. And so the, the battle plan of the apostles was that we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But I want to point us to verse six. For God, this God of creation, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that God, the Genesis God, let there be light, He's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you and I live in this present age when creator God, the God of, of Genesis, has given us a glimpse of the beauty of God, that's what the word glory means, through the, the face of Jesus. What is the, the face, you know, uh, communicates relational connection, to be able to actually sit and look at a person's face. We cannot fully look at God in his fullness. We will just be obliterated. We will die. And so God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to bring us a manifestation that we can grapple with, which is the person of Jesus. And so we look at the face of Jesus and know that we're looking at the character of God. We're looking at the nature of God the nature of the Father, because we look at the face of Jesus and our hearts are undone. And we realize, oh, there's nothing I can do to clean up my life. There's nothing I can do to pull myself together. I just need him. I just want to look at him. And it changes us. And that becomes the answer then for our life. Not just once on a Sunday morning or at an evangelistic event or some, some moment when you pray a prayer, no, but it becomes our way of life as the people of God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter one. This is such a rich book, and uh, just even this chapter, Hebrews chapter one, is so rich. Like still, you know, scholars, they look at the book of Hebrews, and they are, they're in awe of the, like just even the, the writing style is so profound and uh, elegant and it's beyond many of the other letters of the New Testament in terms of its eloquence and uh, it's on uh, in its excellence in terms of writing style. So I'm not going to fully do it justice this morning, but I want us to just begin to look at 
Hebrews chapter one is such a beautiful passage and I pray that the Lord will meet you. I pray that God through his word will reveal himself to you regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what you're walking through this morning, that Jesus will reveal himself to you as the answer. So Hebrews chapter one says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is the day and age you and I live in. These last days. We, sometimes we think, and I talk about this with, with my kids, we think it'd be really cool to live during the Bible times, during specifically the, the times of the Old Testament. But, but you and I, we get to live in the Bible times in which Jesus himself has been revealed. Like God's infinite wisdom has been displayed in the person of his son taking on flesh in Jesus. This is the day, you know, Peter tells us that the angels, they, they long to look. So he's spoken to us by his son, so an even better way, and that's kind of the theme of the book of Hebrews. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. It's a very similar language to what we just read in 2 Corinthians. He is this, this emanating light from God himself. Like you can't really, like the sun outside, you can't really look at the sun. You can see the rays, the radiance of the sun. It's about as close as you can get. That's what God has done in displaying himself through his son, Jesus, by, by his son taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's what Jesus said, right? Jesus said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's speaking of his character, of his, of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just let that wash over you. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So regardless of what you are facing, like these situations that overwhelm us, that stress us out, that rattle our cages, we're talking about looking at the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think everything's gonna be all right, folks. I think everything's gonna be okay. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And in verse four, you know, having become, it's not so much that he wasn't already superior to the angels, really. The Greek there refers more to having like appeared, like being revealed as superior to the angels. Because there was a while there, it didn't look like he was superior to the angels, right? I mean, he came in the form of a baby and was born to a peasant girl and didn't look so much like he was superior to the angels, but it was revealed, it, was, it now, now appeared to be the, the, the reality that he's superior to the angels. So the writer of Hebrews, of, which, of whom we do not know, um, wrote the book of Hebrews, is writing most likely to two different audiences. One is to Greek culture, these, these people who were fascinated by philosophy and the, the, the higher thoughts of life, and oftentimes questioned what ultimate reality was. And he's also writing to Jewish Christians, people who were raised in Judaism, 
like immersed in the Jewish culture and Jewish ways. So these are kind of the, the two, two audiences, and we see this throughout the book of Hebrews. Him addressing to the Greek here ultimate reality found in Jesus. Like this is what the philosophers are saying. This is Jesus, the ultimate reality, the one who upholds the universe by his word. And to the Hebrew listener, the Jewish listener, he's speaking to the reality that Jesus is our access to God. That's like the, the, the great longing of, of every Jew is to draw near to God. It's all centered around worship, which is drawing close to a holy God. And so he's revealing Jesus, he's pointing to Jesus as the way. You want to be accepted by God? Yeah, you, you know of the Jewish ways, the Jewish laws? Here's the better way. Here's the ultimate way to accessing the presence of God. This is just first considered Jesus' ultimate reality to the, to the, to the Greek listener. Because I, I think this is very important for us today in our modern culture to look at Jesus as the ultimate reality. In a culture where many are saying, like many voices are saying, ultimate reality is what you experience internally in yourself. That ultimate reality is self. We, we live in a day and age that tries, tries to treat everything as so profound and unprecedented and, and uniquely uh, new. When in reality, there is nothing new under the sun. And so we see in our current generation a, a generation that is enamored by their subjective feelings or inner realities, making them more important than objective consequences or even the measurable world around us. I thought it was fascinating looking at old quotes from Greek culture. In Plato himself, this is 500 BC. This is, this is how similar it sounds to our current day and age. He's describing his peers. 500 BC, he says, he lives from day to day, indulging the appetite of the hour. And sometimes he's lapped in drink and strains of the flute. Then he becomes a water drinker and he tries to get thin. Then he takes a turn at gymnastics. His life has neither law nor order. And the distracted, in this distracted existence, he terms joy and bliss and freedom. It's this pursuit of self-expression and self-actualization and pleasure. That's the one that the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the ultimate reality. And he says that to us today. This word still stands today. Jesus is the ultimate reality, not what we feel internally. Not what, what our experiences were in this, in this messed up world, but rather he himself. He is the ultimate reality. There are some that really feel that ultimate reality is, is just temporal. It's just what we experience in the flesh. We live for the here and now. For experiences, for, for pleasure. And people will pursue temporal happiness no matter the cost. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the ultimate reality. Make it a practice to look at the one who was, who is, and is to come. Who's the beginning and the end. Look at the eternal one, the alpha and the omega, the uncreated one. I mean, the songs we sang this morning were just rich with the beauty of Christ and Christ alone. I mean, 
amazing, amazing job, worship team, choosing songs that stir our hearts with truth. And so the writer of Hebrews points us to the fact that the Lord Jesus is the creator of the world. He wasn't an afterthought of the Father. He is the creator of the world. The Son is this bridge between humanity and God. He created through the Son because the Son is the revealing of God to creation. He says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. Because we do not truly know what beauty is until we look at Jesus. He's beautiful in every way. He embodies God in every way. He, he's the embodiment of humility and faithfulness and kindness and mercy and justice and holiness and compassion and love. He is the embodiment of the nature of God. And thirdly, you know, the writer of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the, by the word of his mouth, by his word. So he's sovereign overall. He holds all power. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is ultimate reality. Just allow that to hit you. Allow that to wash over you. As so often we give so much credence to feelings and I, I, am, I am extremely empathetic to, to feeling and to sitting with people and allowing us to be honest about what we're experiencing and feeling. But the ultimate answer, eventually, eventually we have to bring those feelings to rest before a God who is supreme above those things. Eventually we have to bring ourselves to that good news, that liberating good news that actually has an answer for the turmoil and oftentimes wrestling that goes on inside of our souls. So Jesus is ultimate reality. So I said, that's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying to, to the Greek listener. Well, to the, to the Jewish listener, he was saying that Jesus is our way of being accepted to God. He is the answer. He's our way into the presence before a holy God. And so in those few verses, he said that God has been revealing himself to the prophets so that people could come to him. The prophets laid out the way through the law that we could draw new, Gentiles could come into the courts, and then Jews could go into the holy place and the, the, the high priests could, could serve in the holy, holy place and the, holy, the great high priest could go into the holy of holies. It was all about coming near to a holy God. That's what was revealed to the prophets. But now in these last days, it's been revealed through the Son of, way, of a way of being, being able to come close to God. And how did he do it? Secondly, he made purification for sins. He provided the answer, the ultimate sacrifice. He took our place. He shed his blood as an answer for our sin. Let's keep reading in verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn to the world, when he says, let all God's angels worship him. We'll stop right there for a moment. Because the writer of Hebrews is dismantling any view, any lesser view of, of Jesus that would equate him with angels. Let us be clear. Jesus caused an eruption of praise within the angelic hosts. 
This is why the Christmas season is such a season of worship for us. And the angels, they came and visited the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth. What were they doing? They were worshiping. Because they were giddy at the revealing of the Son of God. They were giddy with the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the one of whom they serve, is being revealed to creation. So they were worshiping. They were in awe of the Son. They came accompanying his arrival here on earth because they were, they were with him in glory in heaven. Like They, they saw the Son in the, in the glories of heaven. And they wanted others to realize the, the glory of this one who now came as a child. They were like, if you all just knew, you also would erupt in praise. If you all just knew. I mean, I, I would say that worship is, is dead in a place. You know, if a place isn't lively with worship. It, you know, if, if people don't have a, a, a revelation of what God is like, the, worship is dead in a place. They're just singing, a, singing songs a, on a screen, going through the motions. If we don't have a, a real revelation of what God is like, but likewise, if people have a revelation of what Jesus is like, like worship will erupt. Like worship is inevitable. It's, it's the, the works that flow out of that faith that actually sees Jesus for who he is. Like worship accompanies a vision of what God is really like in the person of Jesus. Verse six, it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, please do understand that that phrase, Jesus being the firstborn, is not referring to him being uncreated before. That's what the writer of Hebrews is wanting them to understand. He is the uncreated one, but yet he came into this world born to a, to a, peasant, a peasant girl in a small village outside of Israel. This is the king of glory. He's the firstborn, not because he didn't exist before, but because he was born on earth. And he's providing for us a glimpse of this new way of being human. A human that can be in right relationship with God. Jesus now is the example for us. He's the template, or the prototype even more so. He's, he shows us now how to be human. He lived life as a son, even though he's fully God. He showed us how to live as a son. This becomes our, our way of life now. Let's keep reading verse seven. It says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the writer of Hebrews is so immersed in what the prophets were foretelling about this one who was coming, Jesus. They knew this was speaking of Jesus. This one who would rule as a king, who would establish himself and his kingdom on the earth. Verse 10, and Lord, lay, and, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like garments. This is talking of Jesus. This is speaking of Jesus. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. 
And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So that's all that the prophets had spoken of, talking about all those things are things that they've spoken of regarding Jesus. So speaking of the angels now, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So let's never mistake the messengers as something more than they are. The messengers are messengers. And specifically for the Jewish listeners, there was this real infatuation with the role of angels in the revealing of the law. That's why here as we move on, he speaks of the angels delivering the message and delivering the law. There was this tradition in Judaism that the angels were the ones that, that actually revealed the law to Moses. But the writer of Hebrews wanted to clearly establish from the outset that Jesus is high above the angels. Jesus must never be lowered in our view. Yes, he came down to lowly humanity. Yes, he came in a low, lowly manger. Yes, he came to a lowly girl in little old Bethlehem, but he is God and all things are subject to him and the enemy answers to him. At the end of this whole thing, the enemy answers to Jesus. I would say that the most central characteristic that people fail to attribute to Jesus is the fact that he is God. They can grapple with his humility, with his mercy, with his love, with his meekness, with his compassion. But it demands something of us when we declare Jesus is God. When we make these statements like verse eight about him, that your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, is forever and ever. Scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Speaking of Jesus himself. This is what he says of the son. So I pray that we would never lower our view of Jesus. And that's where he leads us then into chapter two, Hebrews chapter two. We're just gonna read through the whole book of Hebrews, so I hope you're, hope you're ready. So, no, we're not. But into chapter two, it kind of speaks then to the so what. Like what does this then mean for our life? That's where I wanna bring it. Verse one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, so that Jewish tradition was that, and there are a few other passages where that's repeated, even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts and in Galatians, which speaks of the angels delivering the law to the Jewish people. That was reliable. And there was a consequence for disobedience. Verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And all the more, such a great revelation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and my gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's like God in his generosity gave us the ultimate sign in Jesus, but then the icing on the cake is all these other miracles and signs, signs and wonders that point to his glorious beauty and his wonder. That's all the icing on the cake. Jesus himself is enough. 
So the writer of Hebrews is starting off the letter saying that our view of God will determine everything for our lives. So I found, just as I like do life with you all and I've experienced the ups and downs of life in my own heart, I found that one of the most chronic and persistent underlying issues in my own heart and in the lives of others is rooted in a low view of God. This is why he says, pay attention to what we've heard. Don't neglect the great gift of salvation. Pay pay careful attention to what you've heard so we don't drift away. If you've parented kids, like you you like are frustratingly aware of this dynamic. You, you tell kids something and they pretend like they never heard it, right? When actually you locked eyes with them, like they nodded, they gave you their assurance that they heard and yet they drifted away. Like they either f- forgot it or chose to forget it or, forgot, or chose to, to forget it, they, they neglected it. And if we'll be honest, we, we do much the same. We have this encounter with how glorious and beautiful the Lord is. In church gatherings, like the, church, like the sacredness of like holy gatherings like this are like prime places for us to get grounded in what God is truly like, who he, who he truly is, and how beautiful and glorious he is. But then the stuff of life happens and it's, it's like we forget what we heard. It's like we forget what we just saw. And then what happens to us is what happened at the very beginning in the garden. Those thoughts come. Hey, maybe you know better than God. Hey, Drew, you know, maybe God can't be trusted after all. Maybe, there was, maybe there's more to the story. Maybe, maybe that benevolent, merciful creator God can't be trusted. Before we know it, we're not being careful about what we're hearing and we drift away. Let's be honest. If we can't trust God, then we can't, we can't even trust reality itself. Like We can't even trust, trust the next step that we take. If we can't trust God, the one who upholds the universe by, by his word, like we can't trust anything then at that point. Like Everything falls apart in that low view of God. So I just want to kind of break this down, and I'm going to bring it to a close. I'll invite the worship team forward. Like if, if we lower our, this is the dynamic at play. If we lower our view of God, almost simultaneously, inevitably, what happens is we also kind of lower our view of the severity of sin. Like we also have this sense of like downplaying our own need for the Lord. That's, that's inevitable. If we take our, our eyes off how holy and majestic and beautiful the Lord is, inevitably what happens is we also start to give ourselves a free pass on, yeah, maybe I don't really need the Lord all that much. I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty good. I've done pretty good on my own. And if we begin to then downplay the seriousness of our need for God, then inevitably we won't appreciate the extravagance of his mercy and love. Because just that, the gap between his extravagant majesty and our desperate need for the Lord has been it's been evened out. So all of a sudden, like that overwhelming sense of his love just wrecking us becomes less and less. It's like, well, I don't really need him all that much. Like, I'm doing pretty well. 
And if we aren't wrecked by his love, then what happens is we'll move on to other things. We'll move on from Jesus to other things. We'll say, oh, oh yeah, I've, I've heard that before. Oh, that's, that story is great. And trust me, in my seat, like pastoring in a local church, like Christmas season is, is numero uno for this kind of mindset of, oh, I've heard this before. Oh yeah, the story of Jesus coming as a baby and mangers and shepherds and oh yeah, I've heard it before. And we don't allow it to wreck us. We don't allow it to wash over our hearts. We don't allow it to ground us. We don't allow it to renew and stoke fresh love in our hearts for the Lord. We don't allow it to wreck us with his holiness and his beauty and our need for the Lord. Instead, we completely fly over those realities. And we're talking about the creator God who brought everything into existence. Everything you see with your eye, everything you've experienced in your life, you brought it all into existence. And the ones that he created rebelled against him. And yet, he still pursued us in love. Yet he did not reject us outright. Instead, he made a way. Simultaneously, he fulfilled his obligation to love and to be holy in the person of Jesus. To be perfect in every way and to satisfy all the requirements that he set out to approach him, he satisfied in Jesus. And to be consistent with his love, he makes a passionate plea with our hearts. So let us never drift away from this reality. Verse three, it says that we cannot escape the consequences if we neglect such a great salvation. Like if, it, if anything can be known from just like peering into the old covenant in the Old Testament, it's made, it's made to make very clear to our hearts that there are consequences for our decisions, for our choices. So the writer of Hebrews says, may it be very clear to us that we cannot escape consequences if we neglect such a great salvation, if we neglect this. I want to give us an opportunity this morning to respond to the Lord and to throw everything before this one who is higher than it all, regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what you're walking through. The answer is the same. And I say that not to be trite or oversimplify, overly simplistic, but simply because it's the actual medicine for your, for your soul. It's the actual answer. It's Jesus himself. Andrew Murray said this, that feeling always, like our feelings, always seek something in themselves. They're, they're searching for some answer in themselves, some moment of like, aha, some epiphany. Faith keeps itself occupied with what Jesus is. So feelings always seek something for themselves, but faith keeps itself occupied with what Jesus is. It almost seems foolish, but it is the way of Christ for us. If we'd all stand in this place.
just want to end with this. Romans chapter 12. Paul makes a kind of a similar appeal as what the writer of Hebrews just said. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Like, be careful about what you've heard so you don't drift away. But rather, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the, by, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul here tells us that this invitation for worship for us to lift our eyes higher, what it looks like is our bodies being presented to the Lord as living sacrifices. Because I can tell you, it's painful to set aside what we're feeling or maybe our doubts, our attitudes, our unbelief, our unforgiveness, our depressive tendencies or the mood that we're in or the doubt that we feel. Like set that aside and look at Jesus to lift our eyes higher. But that's the invitation. As a living sacrifice, present yourself to the Lord. That is spiritual worship, he says. And it's also the Lord's path for transformation in your life through the renewal of your mind. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.